Well, if you turn your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, we continue our study this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians on the subject of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be reading from verses 12 through 34. We have been looking into this book for over a year and a half now, and it has been a very good study as Paul has been correcting a number of misunderstandings, correcting a number of behavioral issues in the church. And here he once again corrects some doubts that they have about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes the impact and the implications that the resurrection has on our lives. First Corinthians chapter 15 And we begin reading at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised but if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if we have hoped in Christ in this life only We are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do? Who are baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. 
Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we come once more before your word. And we ask, Father, that we might fear you. That, Father, you would teach us. That, Father, you would open the eyes of our heart. That we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the stories in ancient Christendom is about the 40 martyrs of Sebast. It's about 40 soldiers, 40 soldiers, all of them who were Christians. They were members of the famed 12th Legion of Rome's Imperial Army. And one day their captain told them that the Emperor Licinius had sent out an edict that all soldiers were to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods to which these 40 soldiers of the imperial army said, you can have our armor and even our bodies, but our hearts, allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ. And it was midwinter in A.D. 320 when the captain marched all of them out onto a frozen lake. He stripped them of all of their clothes and said that they would either die or renounce Christ. And throughout the night, they sang their song, Forty Martyrs for Christ. And one by one, the temperature took its toll, and they fell to the ice as dead men, until there was just one. One left who stood And he lost his courage and he stumbled back to shore where he renounced Christ. The officer of the guards had been watching all of this and unbeknownst to him, he and others, he, I should say, had secretly come to know Christ. He had professed his faith and when he saw the last man break his ranks, he walked out onto the ice and threw off his clothes and confessed that he was a Christian. And so the next day, when the sun rose, there were 40, 40 dead soldiers who proclaimed Christ. 40 martyrs for Christ. The reality of one's commitment, the reality of one's service, the reality of one giving their life in order to die for the sake of a Savior... Is all because our Savior is alive. All because He is risen from the dead. The cause worth living for, a cause worth dying for, a cause worth giving one's life for. And the impact and the implications because of our Savior exemplified here in this passage where Paul ends what he says here. Why would anybody give their life if Christ were not raised from the dead? 
Why would anybody give their life if there was not a hope for heaven? And when we looked at the resurrection last week, we began looking at this extensive passage, the most extensive passage in all of the New Testament regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that there were a number of theories that those who deny the resurrection posit. You might see them on the news. You might see them in Time magazine. You might see them on some article in the newspaper by some archaeologist who has found something and they say, well, look, look, this proves Jesus didn't die. We looked at the swoon theory where they believe Jesus merely fainted. Or some believe that all the believers were hallucinating about Christ having arisen. Some believed he was impersonated by someone else, able to fool hundreds of people. Some believed that he was only spiritually resurrected, not physically. Or fifthly, that somebody stole his body. Or that simply, lastly, the disciples went to the wrong tomb and they found it empty. All of these false accounts we looked at last week where Scripture speaks clearly that he was physically resurrected from the dead, seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses over a period of time by people from different demographic backgrounds who had no reason to lie. Jesus lastly appeared to Paul, the least of the apostles, he says, but the hardest working. And yet some today will doubt the resurrection. In fact, there are those who are pastors or preachers who will also teach that Christ was not resurrected from the dead. Those of you who perhaps are radio listeners of radio ministry probably are familiar with the name J. Vernon McGee. He has this through the Bible radio and he's passed away many years ago, but they still broadcast his his radio program because people continue to listen, grow, and support the ministry. There's a story about him receiving a letter one day from a woman. A woman who wrote to him and said that our preacher had made an argument that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but that he fainted. That it's the swoon theory, and according to this theory, of course, there was no resurrection, to which Dr. McGee replied, writing back, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, then run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, then see what happens. Secular theories that are posited are still purported these days on the news. You can read of them. You can see them. Costco has their tours based upon movies that are based upon the idea that Jesus didn't really die. That he came off the cross, that he had a family or whatever it might be. And so there was doubt. And Paul confronts the doubt that was in the city of Corinth as well. Because the church there had their doubts. For in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Why would some who were in the church doubt the resurrection? They believed perhaps that Jesus was raised from the dead for them. Why would they doubt that there would be a resurrection? One of the ideas, one of the reasons likely was that in the Greek culture there was this philosophy of dualism 
of dualism, which is often attributed to Plato, which considered everything that was spiritual good and everything that was physical as evil or sinful. The body which was physical was basically an evil prison by which the spirit which was good was shackled to it until the day that they died and they would be free from that. And some of that perhaps justified some of the immorality that they could do anything that they want. They could be gluttonous, they could be fornicators, they could do whatever they wanted in the body because that was evil anyways. Someday they would be free from all of that and they would be good. So, you can understand, why would anyone want their wicked, evil body to be resurrected from the dead? So some of them thought. One commentator writes, They believed in the immortality of the soul, but strongly opposed the idea of a resurrection of the body, as Paul had experienced when he preached on the Areopagus. Quote in Acts 17.32, Now when they, the Athenian philosophers, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Now you know why they would sneer. Why would anybody want? It would be as if you didn't have a glorified body later on, but maybe you had lost your arms and legs. Why would you want that same body back, perhaps, they thought. Not only was that the Greek philosophy opposed the idea, some of the Jewish individuals, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection either. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believe there, there is no fate. Man has free will and the soul is not immortal. Sadducees believe there is no afterlife. There are no rewards or penalties even after death. And they rejected the notion of the resurrection. And so, just like today, just like today, there are various things that come from the world, their philosophies of what they think will happen to a person when they're resurrected from the dead. Some people, they'll teach there is a soul sleep. The Seventh-day Adventists will teach that sort of a thing, that the body dies, it disintegrates, but the soul or the spirit goes into soul sleep and it simply rests. Some will teach reincarnation, where you come back in a future life as something else. Others will teach annihilationalism, where after a period of time, either you're not going to suffer for very long, or you don't suffer at all, your life is just snuffed out. Some will teach absorption. Absorption, the idea that your spirit or part of it is absorbed back into the universal divine being, just like a drop of water returns to the ocean and becomes absorbed into everything else. Various ideas that people have about what the resurrection actually is. No doubt they had their problems too about some philosophy. They thought about dualism or there was no resurrection at all. And just a point of application here, many people, and many times we find certain things that float around our cultural beliefs from our background, or maybe our grandparents or parents, or or our our society will bring in ideas that are anti-biblical. Don't adopt those so readily. But the scriptures speak clearly and we come to that of whatever the word of God says. And Paul delineates a number of implications, number of implications if there is no resurrection of the dead. And he goes on from 13 to 19, listing these out. 
If there is no resurrection, Jesus wouldn't be raised. Preaching would be in vain. Our faith would be worthless. Preachers would be false teachers. We would still live in our sin. Those who have died before us will have perished. We're not going to see them again. And we are to be pitied. We're to be pitied. That's the logical conclusion. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Christianity would be like any other belief system. As I shared with you last week, the apologist Josh McDowell, maybe you've seen some of his books like Evidence Demands a Verdict or, or uh, you know, Son of a Carpenter. All of these, he, he says all but four major world religions. All but four major world religions are based upon some philosophical proposition. But those that are based upon a person, a personality, rather than a philosophical system... Christianity is the only one that claims an empty tomb as its founder. The work that is given to us to teach the Word of God would be an exercise in futility. We'd be never free from sin, never see our loved ones. There is no hope of heaven if there is no resurrection. All of these implications and we would be most pitied. And sometimes as Christians we might see others who are lost as well and feel that same feeling. We may feel that same lostness as we look at them and see that they are lost in sin. Those that are selling flowers on the street corner, perhaps because we think maybe they're part of the Unification Church and trying to get whatever it is. Or the two guys that knocked on my door, I think just last week, and they're wearing their ties and their white shirt, and they're young guys. I tell you, they are, they're just at it. They're missionary journey. Oh, we're missionaries from such and such church. We feel badly for them. I remember the first time that I touched down in India. We had a, the plane arrived in the middle of the night. It was about midnight or one. And then we took a, took a car ride for some three hours into Pune. And when we arrived there, it was about three, four a.m. or so. It was still pitch black. And yet, I looked outside of the van window. And there were all of these young people, all of these teenagers who were dressed up, who had their symbols and their gongs, and they were carrying on their shoulders this huge, huge idol on their shoulders. And there were people who were walking in front of them, throwing, throwing fruit on the ground and breaking it on the ground. Why? As an offering to their God. And I found out this was happening all night because it was a celebration that night. Just young people who are lost. And the city would blow off firecrackers and it was a noisy celebration. India is one of the places with the most idols, physical idols in the world. So many, so lost. And we would be just among them. The same thing if it weren't for a resurrected Savior. People wasting their life on a hopeless future no hope destined never to see loved ones again life would be a what a tragic joke wouldn't it it'd be a tragic joke a charade a wasted life what is empty is not our faith what is empty is the tomb 
And our faith is not in vain. And Paul presents here, secondly, the impact that it has. The impact that it has in verses 20 to 28. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits of those who are asleep. There is life after death. When it says the first fruits here, the first fruits were generally those that the, the first of the crops, the first of the fruits that would come in, and people would take that very first portion and they would bring it as an offering to God. And they would bring it as an offering to God, and they would also see that as indicative of the fruit that was to come later on. If you had a good harvest and a good first fruit, you bring that first. And it would be trusting that God would continue to bless and bring like fruit later on. And so here Christ is pictured as the first fruits, the first one to rise. Now, there are people in the scriptures who had come back from being dead before, but they would later once again die. Technically, they would be resuscitations rather than resurrections in a glorified body as Christ were. And it gives us hope that someday we will be like Christ who came first as the first fruits, that we too would be the fruit that would come and be like Him in a glorified body. We would be, as the Scriptures say, made alive. Made alive. Now the text goes on. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now, maybe you've heard somebody say, as they've begun to learn the Bible, isn't it unfair? Adam and Eve, they made a mistake. They sinned. And it contaminated everyone. And I'm not going to heaven because of them. Thousands of years ago, they ate a fruit off a tree. And I am going to hell because of them. That's not fair. How can that be fair? From our human standpoint, that may seem unfair. But God's solution to the fact that Adam's sin was ascribed to the human race is also God's solution through Christ. When He died on the cross, His righteousness is also available to all who would come to Him, ascribed to the human race for all who would repent and believe. If somebody were to say that, and somebody were to say, well, if it were your system, then you would, of course, pay for every single sin that you've ever committed, wouldn't you? You wouldn't go to heaven. In fact, it would be such a debt, you wouldn't be able to pay it at all, having offended God so greatly. In fact, the righteous penalty would be what? If it were according to that logic, separation from God for all of eternity, wouldn't it? But Christ, when Christ died, and when we placed our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, God looks at Christ and He sees our sin, even though Christ is righteous. God looks at us and He sees Christ's righteousness, even though we are sinners. It doesn't make us inherently righteous, but God sees us in the righteousness of Christ, and that is how we can go to heaven. There is life after death. 
because Christ makes us alive. But the second implication is that Christ will resurrect and He will reign. He will resurrect and He will reign. It says there in the text, each in his own order, verse 23, Christ the first fruits, then comes the end, when, the, when He hands over the kingdom to God and the Father. You very well know, there are various instances and people will be raised from the dead. They will be resurrected. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, a very familiar passage in First Thessalonians 4. We look at that passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Passage that is often read during memorial services, in which Paul writes here, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. The word asleep there is a euphemism for those who have died. So that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. All those who have died in the past up until the time of the rapture, they will rise first. Their physical bodies will rise from the grave, be reconstituted and glorified. And then those who are Christians at the coming of the Lord Jesus at the rapture will join them in the air. Then you think, well, what happens about those who are during, live during the tribulation and they die? They come to know Christ, but they die. They too, at that end, at the end of the tribulation, they too will be raised again. And will reign with Christ during the thousand-year millennium that it speaks of in the book of Revelation. And undoubtedly during the millennium, there will be, come, there will be those who will also come to know Christ. And they will die. And there will be a resurrection for them as well. Not only will Christ, you see, resurrect, but He will reign. It says, and He will put all His enemies under His feet. You see, in ancient times, they built a, a throne. They built a throne and it was elevated up so that all his subjects who came and bowed before the king would physically come and they would be physically lower than the feet of the king. They would be under his feet. And if there was an enemy who would be defeated, that enemy, that king or that general would be placed on the ground before the king. And the king would place his foot on the back of that individual's neck, symbolic of that individual's subjection and submission and defeat under the king. And the Bible is clear. All things will be put in subjection except for God, the Father Himself. All things will be placed in subjection under Jesus Christ. And so we see even within the Godhead Trinity that there is God the Father and there is an economic relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
that there are roles and responsibilities that are different even among the members of the Trinity. And this passage reminds us of Philippians 2 where it says that because of Christ's humility that God highly exalted Him And bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, on on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Every spirit that is in heaven, every demon that is on hell, every living being here on the earth will bow to the Lord Jesus. And those who do not submit to Jesus today will be made to submit to Jesus later. Those who do not confess that Jesus is Lord, the text says, they will confess and be made to confess Jesus as Lord later. So why not give your life to Jesus today? Why not surrender your life to Jesus now? Why not give your life to Christ and be blessed and live a life under God's favor? Because, you see, it's only a matter of time. Many of us want to perhaps live our own lives, sail our own ships, be the captain of our own destiny. But God has called us to be His own. For He's bought us with a price. And when He redeems His own people, we joyfully, in freedom, submit to Him. Because someday, all will bow to Christ. All will bow and confess Jesus is Lord. The implications of the resurrection is that there is life after death. And that all will subject themselves because Christ will reign. Thirdly, there are motives and motivations in verses 29 to 34. And we come to a section that is perhaps one of the most confusing and opaque in all of Scripture. It is a difficult passage in which to interpret. In fact, in this particular section of text in verse 29, it reads, Otherwise, what will those do? who are baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, there are a lot of posited interpretations for this, over two dozen. I remember writing a paper on this in seminary. There was like 28 or 32 different interpretations to this particular passage. Because the way that it reads, what about those people who are baptized for the dead? What What does that mean? Does it mean like the Mormons teach that it's a proxy baptism where uh, my uh, great-grandfather is not a Christian. Maybe I can be baptized for him and him be able to go to heaven? No, we know that it doesn't mean that. And whenever you come to a passage of Scripture that is unclear, you, as a basic principle of interpretation, you take those that are clear to shed light on what is here. We do know that it somehow relates to the context of what Paul is writing about in the context of resurrection. So if we look at the text carefully, what does it mean when it says, What will those do who are baptized for the dead? 
Now, when we look at the word for, and it's key, I believe, here, because we look at various words, there is a range of meanings. A range of meanings. Whenever you transfer one language to another, there is a range of optional choices of what it means. And one of the options in the range of meanings for this particular word, huper, it can either mean in order that or because of. When you look at the English word for, okay? It can either mean in order that or because of. It's like when a police officer decides that you're going too fast on the freeway and he pulls you over and there you are, you're nervous, you're sweating, you're getting your license out. He's writing down all of this stuff and you're wondering whether or not he's going to give you a ticket. So he comes over to your window and he gives you a ticket and you say, sir, what have I done? And he says, this is a ticket for speeding and you say, well, I don't... Well, he says, look, I have my gun here. Look, it's a, it's a speed gun. It shows that you are speeding. This is a ticket for speeding. Now, is he giving you a ticket in order that you can speed more or because you were speeding? It's because you were speeding, weren't you? So, look at the range of meanings here. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized because of the dead? Or if the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized because of them? That's the first point that we make. The second is, is that the idea of being baptized was so closely linked to the idea of being a Christian that they were sometimes used synonymously. In other words, back in New Testament times, you counted the cost. If you were not baptized and you professed to be a Christian, they would doubt whether or not you were a true believer at all. Not because you needed to be baptized in order to be saved, but because it was a matter of obedience, clear obedience. And so if you were not water baptized, they would wonder, are you either A, living in continual sin, or B, not a believer at all because a true believer back then would be baptized. So, knowing that, is it saying then? And I believe this renders the passage much more clear. What about those who are baptized or becoming Christians because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized or becoming Christians because of them? And the idea is simple. The resurrection is what those who are believers lived for. Those who later on would see those who are dead. And they would say, I want to live too. Many times we see that, practically speaking, you have one spouse, perhaps a wife. She's been very faithful in her life going to church, worshiping the Lord, placing her faith and trust in Him, she passes away. But the stubborn husband who only comes on Christmas and Easter sees that and he realizes all of the things that his wife has lived for and his heart softens. He not only wants to be where she is at, but he also decides he wants to place his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus because he has seen the testimony of her faith. Or many times those who have been martyred have turned their lives to Christ because of the stand that they took, much like the 40 soldiers of Sebast. It is the testimony of the dead that is in view here. What will those do? If there is no resurrection, Paul says, 
What will those people who are becoming Christians, why would they even want to become Christians because of the dead? They're not going anywhere. Or if the dead aren't raised, why would they even want to become Christians or be baptized? That is the sentiment here. It is a motivation for those to salvation. And we see that as a practical outliving today. The second motivation, though, that the resurrection imparts is purposeful, sanctified living. Purposeful, sanctified living. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting, I die daily. He, he ran from wild beasts in Ephesus. And if the dead aren't raised, well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The reason Christians work hard, the reason Christians serve God, the reason Christians put their life in danger, the reason Christians surrender their lives to serve Christ is because of the salvation of souls, the hope for the future, the resurrection of the dead, because Christ Himself has been raised. The reason Christians will sacrificially give, the reason Christians will take time for committee meetings, or invest themselves in things eternal is because of the promise of life after death. You know, when I was in Uganda, so impressed me, our driver. His name was Richard, and those of you who went know Richard. He's a tall man. I love his testimony because each and every person that we met there in Uganda, every person had a family member or a friend or a close associate who had been killed. Captured or killed at one time by the Lord's Resistance Army. An army that would abduct children who were very young and they would take these children and turn them into child soldiers. And the way they would turn them into child soldiers, they'd place a machine gun in their hands, forcing them to kill the rest of their family. Not only would it eliminate their own family, but it would alienate them from their own tribe. And they would be then adopted, quote-unquote, into the army, this army that was led by Joseph Cohn. And they seared the consciences of these children in that way. And this man, Richard, had been captured five times by the rebel army, made to carry their bags, made to carry their supplies. He was a very tall man. Five times he was released for various reasons. And he was an alcoholic and a former fornicator. He had become a Christian and he had begun to share the gospel with others. After he was released, the fifth time he was, he was writing, sharing the gospel with two other pastors along the road in his bicycle. And they were stopped by the rebel army. And the rebel army, they liked to play games with these folks as entertainment, a game of roulette. And what they would do is they would pit one person against another of their own team and they would say, place a gun in his hand or whatnot, tell them to shoot their friend. And if they didn't, they themselves would be shot. Of course, they were... Believers, and they didn't do so. They said no, and the first guy, boom, they would shoot him, point blank. The next man, they asked Richard to shoot him, and Richard refused to, so they shot him too. 
When it came to Richard, they told him that they were going to kill him as well. And they put a gun to his head. They pulled the trigger. It went click. The gun had jammed. They checked the gun and put the gun to him again. And they pulled the trigger and it went click. And it had jammed again. And the captain of, of the army was so upset, he gave him, gave the soldier a different gun, his own. And he took his gun and put it to Richard's head and pulled the trigger and it went click. It had jammed once again. And all of the soldiers, they were afraid because they knew this man would not die at their hand. They knew that he was a special individual. And Richard knew that from that time on as well, that God had saved him for some reason. But what was even more amazing about this man and his testimony is that a few years earlier, his wife had died. His wife had died and he was supporting five children of his own. Not only that, his brother had died. And in that culture, when your brother dies, you adopt their family as well. So he had his brother's wife in his home and he had four more children, nine children of his own. And when there is a man like that in a situation that comes when you are threatened by an army just for being who you are, most people, I would say, would quit. Most people would say there's a lot more lucrative things to do. They would say, why in the world would you consider doing something like that? I've got nine mouths to feed. I've got ten people in my home, not including myself. What am I going to do? Most people would think about retirement. What am I going to do about health insurance or medical care? None of that mattered to him. He would be able to feed his family. But his heart was to continue to train pastors on the edge of a country where there weren't any Western missionaries risking their lives to regularly do so. Why? Because Jesus lives. And there is purposeful living because Christ is alive. You've got one life to live. You've got one life. God has given you one life to live here in this world. The question is, what are you doing with that one life? What are you investing yourself in? Is it in things that are eternal? God, His Word, and the souls of men and women that will last on for eternity? Or are there things that will pass? Things that people could care less about in another world? What would you say if God called you someplace and you had nine children? And other family members to take care of. What would you do? Would you say, whatever you say, God, I will do. Or would you use that and say, no, Lord, no way, no way. I'm not going to do anything if it's not convenient for me, if it's not easy enough for me. For Richard, it was because of Christ. Because there was something to live for beyond ourselves. If there was no hope of salvation, perhaps you've been around people who say the same thing. This is a hedonist quote that he quotes here. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. (laughs) You only live once. You might as well live it up, they say. I remember hearing that. And people who live like that, live recklessly, live dangerously, live hedonistically, live sinfully. 
It is like when 1 Peter 4 tells us, The time is sufficient for you, having pursued a course of sensuality, of lusts, of drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. They malign you. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, hanging around people who live like that, who have only this life to live for, who have only this world's values to value, bad company, it'll corrupt good morals. Bad company. So the friends that you choose, choose good friends. Because bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober-minded, it says. Because some of these Corinthians undoubtedly were hanging around some of these folks. Be sober-minded. Think straight. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. It is shameful. It is shameful. And this is so practical for today's Christian. So practical because we're so inundated with the world's values who said, You need this. You need that. You're going to have to save up this much. You're going to have to make sure that you have this taken care of before you can do anything for God, they'll say. But God can overcome whatever obstacle you face. Very worldly. And when Christians hang around them, often bad news. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have any friends who are not Christians. I'm not communicating that at all. I'm not saying we shouldn't associate with people who are not Christians. But ask yourself, am I more influenced by their values? Am I more influenced by their attitudes? Am I more influenced for worldliness and the things that are here? Am I more influenced? Do I find myself thinking more thoughts about the things of this world? Or am I a greater influence on them? That they talk about God because of me. That they have questions because of me. That they know that I am a Christian first and foremost. That they perhaps are inclined because of my influence upon them. What is your mind set on? Oftentimes it is by the people that hang around us that are our friends. So the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. It is a fundamental truth that Paul outlines here. It is something that guarantees life after death. And it is the testimony of believers that have passed on before us, who have given their lives so that we can live. It is a testimony to us. And it motivates us to live for things eternal. I remember when I was in seminary, one of the greatest things that continued to encourage my heart is the testimony of those who have died for the sake of the Scriptures. We all hold Bibles in our hands. We all own a Bible. Many places in the world, they don't. But the reason why people are able to hold a copy of the Scriptures in their own hands is because many have given their lives so that you could have a copy of this book. During the Reformation, there was Bloody Mary, She would be known by that because of all of the deaths that she would cause. It was said of her that once a saint was killed 
a farmer was killed, she would take their Bible. She would dip it into their blood. How precious the Word of God is because it speaks of things eternal, of the resurrection of our Lord, that we might too live for those things that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know the hearts and the minds of every individual here. You can see through the facade that we put up. You can see, O oh God, into the recesses of the heart. I pray, Father, for each and every person here that we might put away the idols of our heart, the comforts of this life, the things that we aspire to that are simply worldly things, that, Father, we might pursue eternal things. And, Father, I pray that you would help us, grant to us strength to live because your Son lives. May you be honored and pleased by our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.